Hi, Hi everyone. everyone. I'm John. And I'm Georgia. And we're here inside your ears to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. This, this is Comfort Films. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 50 of the Comfort Films podcast. Tonight, we're going to be talking about 1978's Halloween and 1980's The Fog. This is week two of our John Carpenter horror movie series. Yes, it is. And since it was episode 50, which is kind of insane, <laughs> we decided to like beef it up <laughs> with a double feature. We just gave it some roids, you know what I mean? <laughs> we got it with like a pit fighter. And, like, it really got ready for the ultimate match. I mean, Georgia and I have really been going for it. You know, I mean, we've been reading. We've been watching. We watched Halloween three times in a row. That is correct. Three times in a row with no breaks. We watched the film. Then we watched it with one commentary. Then we watched it with another commentary. We watched all of the special features. <laughs> and that was in one night on a one week night, night by yeah. the way. Yeah. And then we had to get up and go to work the next day. So that was a hell of a day. <laughs> this is our dedication, <laughs> folks. I mean, we're all in. We're coming fresh off watching The Fog for the third time. Yes. You know, and once again, we did the commentary. We watched all the special features. We did some reading. I mean, this is crazy. We did some reading. We are immersed. Oh, <laughs> we actually drove to filming locations oh, yes. on this one. I mean... We had gone to a filming location for The Fog a while back in August, um, just because we were there. Because this is the kind of shit we do on vacation. <laughs> like, oh, we're going up the coast. Oh, well, I think The Fog was filmed around here. We should detour and check out the lighthouse. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're, we're losers 24-7, 365 when it comes to film. But yeah, so with this, we were like, oh, I the church is in Sierra Madre. That's only 25 minutes away. Let's go look. So we've really been like all Carpenter all the time this week. Mm -hmm. But I think it's paid off. I mean, we were originally thinking we might do a bonus episode and all this kind yeah. of stuff. But John had this great idea of saying, hey, it's episode 50. Let's double it up. We can put Halloween and the Fog together because, you know, basically they were shot with the same crew, you know. Yeah, it's, it's the same bunch of people. And, I mean, it goes again to speak about John Carpenter and basically feels like his traveling road show, you know. <laughs> yeah. He's got Dean Cundy. He's got Tommy Lee Wallace. They're ready for action. We got Deborah Hill leading the charge. Of course. Where the hell would Deborah we be Hill. without Deborah Hill? Nowhere. Exactly. Because Deborah Hill makes such a huge contribution to all of these films. Yeah. And John Carpenter, of course, we love him. He's amazing. But I kind of feel in the discussion of John Carpenter, Deborah Hill gets left out a lot. And Deborah Hill was a writer, a producer. You know, she went on to do a lot of things after her work with John Carpenter. She was a producer on Clue. She was a producer on The Dead Zone. She was a producer on Adventures in Babysitting. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, there's just so much. She's, yeah, she's amazing. And, like, I don't think I realized how much she did until right. we started watching these special features. And, like, every two seconds in Halloween, particularly, 
it was like, oh yeah, Deborah Hill did this, she did that, she brought this, she was, you know, right, you know, so it was pretty cool to do that. And of course, Jamie Lee Curtis appears in both of these movies. Yes, she does. Um, so even though they are very different, they kind of have, you know, a lot of the same bones in a way. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good way to put it. Uh, you know, <laughs> while you're wearing a skeleton shirt, and so am I. <laughs> yes, and we're in Halloween season. I mean, this just mm. makes perfect sense. Talking about bones, yeah, and also smoking bones in the movie Halloween, <laughs> which was very funny because when we listened to the commentary on Halloween with Tommy Lee Wallace, Nick Castle and Dean Cundy, I, I wasn't sure which one of them said it, but they're like, yeah, we sold them that dope, you know, <laughs> yeah. that they smoked in that scene. I was like, wow. Yeah, that was a, they were like talking about this sunset scene that they kind of did a did later mm-hmm. to kind of insert into making more of a transition between day and night. And Deborah Hill shot the scene. Yeah, she directed the scene. <laughs> Deborah Hill directed not only that, but also the iconic opening credit sequence where you see that pumpkin coming at you, you know, that dolly shot. I don't know about you folks, but whenever I would see that pumpkin on television as a kid, it scared the shit out of me. You know, it was just <laughs> something like, oh my God, the pumpkin's getting bigger. The pumpkin's moving. What's going to happen with the pumpkin? And they shot that in a garage because, you know, they're incredible. This is just something that these people did. They just worked together as one big team and they didn't have a budget. Now, no. this film had $325,000 as a budget. Now, this is truly incredible. It brought in $47 million domestically and an additional $23 million internationally. So this really is like the beginning of slasher films because the box office return was so high. You know, one of the producers on the film, uh, executive producer Erwin Yablans, talked about how someone actually called him and said, hey, how did you do it? And he talked them through the entire process. And these people went on to make a film called Terror Train, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, <laughs> you know, as a slasher film on a train. Uh, the film was made in Canada. And according to Gablands, he's like, you know, they actually copied us pretty much shot for shot. You know, it, it really started a revolution in film because two years later, what do we have? In 1980, we have Friday the 13th, yeah, right? Yeah. And, you know, and then it's like we just kept going down the line. The whole reason we got Halloween 2 is Yablans was like, hey, you know, all these other people are making money off of our idea. We need to make a sequel. So they did. Uh, the other executive producer, Mustafa Akkad, is wonderful in an interview that we watched because he had actually like an action figure of Michael Myers. And he's like, you know, every film they make, they want to kill him. But no one's killing him because, you know, he's my buddy. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, he made them a lot of money. And he, yeah, he's, it, this movie originates a lot of like the slasher film tropes. You know, we have the final girl. We have, you know, the mindless killing machine who's kind of indestructible. Mm-hmm. And, and all these different things. You know, he's kind of faceless with the mask. I mean, when you look at Friday the 13th, the Jason character, Jason Voorhees, is basically just a new version, in a way, of Michael Myers. Well, the Friday the 13th situation is 
is very similar because again we have something that centers around sex all of these horror films always seem to have some kind of i don't know bizarre morality inserted into them whether intentional or not deborah hill said of halloween that there was no you know thought of making it that Laurie Strode lived because she was the only one who did not engage in premarital sex in the film. She said it's just something, you know, that happened when writing the story. She said maybe her Catholic upbringing had something <laughs> to do with it. Um, but it was it was never it was never thought to be um, a statement. But in so many films, it's like, you know, they always want to show you the morality, right? Like the yeah. villain always gets the comeuppance, you know, and it's like, so, you know, this is bad. Don't do it. Well, you know? horror films are very morality based anyway. And I think we'll definitely get into that on both Halloween and The Fog. Sure. But, you know, when we were looking at Halloween and looking at some of its roots, because, of course, we're saying, you know, this kind of originated like the it started the slasher film revolution yes it may not be the first one but it's kind of the first one that was this successful mm -hmm. and that made people really want to copy it um which they did many many times through well, I, the 80s yes i'm sorry to cut in the one thing i do want to mention is that halloween was the most successful independent movie until the blair witch project in 1999 so that is a long time. It's like 21 years, yeah. right? Yeah, so that is a long time to be able to hold that crown. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so when we were looking at this movie and we were, we were starting to think about where did it come from, you know, Psycho was one of the things that really kept coming up. And yes. Psycho has that sex and death psychology as well mm -hmm. um so even you know if they weren't actively thinking about it i think that it's just something that really exists as an, an undertone in kind of horror thriller suspense films even all the way back to you know hitchcock well and if we want to dig even deeper into that psycho connection Janet Lee, who is Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, um, she is in Psycho, and she is murdered in the famous shower scene. You mm -hmm. know, that's where Norman Bates comes in dressed as his mother and with a knife kills her. And it's like, oh, wow, okay, so we have the daughter of the person that was in this iconic film, Psycho, in Halloween. So it was like, oh, okay, that that's like, okay, that's one connection. We can see that. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing is, Michael Myers uses a knife that looks very similar to the knife that Norman Bates uses in Psycho for the killings, and even the movement of that knife. In particular, when Norman Bates kills Arbogast, Martin Balsam, the way that the knife comes down really looks like it could have been straight out of a Halloween film. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's that stiff arm movement, and that... Yeah. Well, when we look at when we look at the opening killing in Halloween, which again, by the way, is Deborah Hill. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, right. Her hands are the the child Michael Myers' hands in that opening scene. It's the POV of the killer shot, and the way that she brings down the knife into the girl is very similar in my mind to the way that Norman Bates was stabbing. Because when I think about stabbing someone, you know, which I do all the time, <laughs> I think about, you know, coming at them with the knife kind of horizontal 
and then, you know, going into them. But this is more of like a vertical motion from above. Yes. Of stabbing into someone. And that's what they did here. And that's how it went in Psycho, too. Um, so I thought that was really, you know, another interesting connection between the two and another great example of how Deborah Hill does everything in here. <laughs> Quick joke that I made when we were watching Halloween is there's a scene in the graveyard where Loomis goes to see, you know, the, the grave of Judith Myers, Michael's first victim and older sister. And, you know, the stone has been stolen. <laughs> And there's like a hole in the ground. And I said to John, I bet Deborah Hill dug that hole. <laughs> <laughs> because she did every other thing. Like every minute we were watching the commentary, these guys that were doing the second one that we watched were like, oh, Deborah, Deborah did that. Deborah did that. So I was like, okay, yeah, she dug the hole too. Um, but yeah. And then Loomis, even the name, Sam Loomis is the same name as Marion Crane's boyfriend in Psycho. So Donald Pleasance's character even has the same name. I mean, John Carpenter is very funny with names oh, anyway. Sure. Like, he doesn't like coming up with them. He said it in, like, this interview we watched. So he just names his characters after real people. Um, or in this case, he named it after a different character from Psycho, which clearly they owed a lot of uh, uh, credit to. Well, they got to actually finish the shot in Psycho, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I mean, in 1960, Alfred Hitchcock was not able to show nudity in that shower scene. And when Michael Myers, young Michael Myers, comes up to kill his sister, you know, his sister is topless. And so it's like they were able to get the nudity that Alfred Hitchcock wanted to get, you know, and it, so it's like it... It's, it feels like a continuation, you know, of that work. And also, again, you know, it's like promiscuity. When you look at Psycho, Sam Loomis meets up with Marion Crane in this, you know, kind of seedy hotel, right, where they meet and they have, like, a sexual rendezvous, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they talk about getting married and they talk about the future. These things do come up. But it's like we've already seen Marion Crane as a person with, quote, loose morals, you know, it, that stole. Right. It, yeah. It's just like, OK, you know, and it's just like she has sex. You know what I mean? She's not married. It's cool, guys. But, you know, it's <laughs> like they carry that over, I feel like, into Halloween, because what sets off young Michael Myers? He sees his sister have sex. Well, he doesn't actually see them in the act. Um, and actually, it would take a magician to see them in the act because, you know, Michael Myers' sister and the boyfriend have sex in record time, like maybe 30 seconds, maybe maybe a minute. I don't even think that long. I don't know. I mean, later on, PJ Souls' character, Linda, and her boyfriend, Bob, try to break that record <laughs> by, like, having the shortest sex ever. Um, and by the way, PJ Souls' character is Linda, so we have Bob and Linda, like, from, from Bob's Burgers. That's incredible. I had a huge laugh at that. <laughs> but, yeah, the that was another thing that happened in the commentary that was very funny, is that everybody was like, wow, that was a really quick sex scene. <laughs> like, 
Yeah, everyone mentioned it. I, I love it because it's just like, yeah, it was like that was fast. So it's like we have, again, a person that has had sex out of wedlock. You know, she must be murdered. And that's that's what we get from Michael Myers. He murders his sister. Well, because that somehow sets him off. And that was the explanation that was given in Psycho at the end of Psycho after they've caught um, Anthony Perkins. They, you know, were talking and explaining why he took on his mother's persona right. in order to kill. And they basically explained that he was, you know, sexually repressed and he had this attraction to Marion Crane that he had to kind of push down um, or his mother would get upset, you know, in his right. mind and kind of take over. And that's what happened. So, you know, there's this real exact link being expressed here between sexual urges and death. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's interestingly done. And then, of course, again, we do it, you know, later in the movie with the Annie character who isn't, you know, having sex in that she hasn't had sex on screen like the linda character but the whole thing is she's headed you know she's in the car headed over to pick up her boyfriend because that's what she wants to do right so it's like you know before she can even go for it we're gonna kill her but she is like you know halfway unclothed right you know so it could it could be said that maybe you know just even that was enough to set michael off i mean loomis donald pleasance in Halloween, not Loomis in Psycho, but Loomis in Halloween is more explaining uh, Michael Myers' pathology as that he's just evil. Right. Than that he has like the sex and death connection. But that's what I'm seeing. That's what you're seeing. You know, that's what everybody is seeing. And it, it kind of goes up to a fever pitch in Friday the 13th, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the story. I mean, in Friday the 13th, what is the deal in the first film? The deal is, is that camp counselors were having sex and not paying attention to Jason Voorhees, so Jason Voorhees drowned. And so Mrs. Voorhees has come to Camp Crystal Lake to kill all of the counselors because of that. I mean, it's... It's right there. You know what I mean? It's like sex is death. Yeah, they were like, we're done with subtext. We're just going with it as text. Yeah, I mean, and they take it even further. I mean, in the first Friday the 13th film, you know, the mother is the killer. I'm sorry, major spoiler. If you've not seen Friday the 13th, but I'm going out on a limb and I'm thinking you're listening to a Halloween, the Fog podcast, and I'm thinking... They saw Friday the 13th. Well, that was nice of you to assume, you know, <laughs> you needed to give a spoiler apology anyway, even though that would be really insane if somebody needed that. Well, it's, I mean, I, giving it before would have been better. But, you know, <laughs> the point is that Jason, you know, later gets, of course, the famous hockey mask, just like Michael Myers. And the big thing with Michael Myers and that mask is he's expressionless. And, you know, so it's like you don't know what he's thinking. You don't know what's going on. So I really do feel that Friday the 13th owes quite a bit to, you know, the film Halloween. Mm -hmm. There's also something else that's subtle in the opening shot in the credits 
uh, the opening credit sequence, I should say, that Deborah Hill directed. When you take a look at that jack-o'-lantern, you can see that the nose is a triangle. And then on the right side, it comes down in a straight line. So it actually looks like a knife. Mm. You see? So it's like there's a knife in the middle of his nose and there's the handle, you know, down there on the right. So it's like that's, you know, another thing that's making you feel so uneasy. I mean, these people are very smart. Now, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, just what a team. They wrote everything together. Now, the way that it worked was Deborah Hill is actually from Haddonfield, New Jersey, and she was a babysitter. So her job in the script was to write the female characters and make it realistic. And John Carpenter was interested in the character of Loomis and Michael Myers and that piece. And then the two were merged together to give us the script that we have. Yeah, and well, and the babysitter idea was really where this started with these producers, right? Yes. Like, Yablans and Akkad kind of were like, they wanted a movie about babysitters because they said, you know, everybody and every kid in America knows what a babysitter is, whether mm-hmm. they're like a kid who's been babysat or an older kid who's done babysitting. It's something that you can relate to and that young people would want to see and, and feel, you know, that they had a kinship with. Um, and so they wanted to do a movie about that, and, and that was where they kind of started here, was this babysitter idea, and that's kind of Jamie Lee Curtis's character's, like, the ultimate babysitter, right? Because Annie is babysitting, too, but instantly she's just ready to, like, jump ship, you know, and <laughs> just go hang out with her boyfriend, and they just, you know, she pushes Lindsay, the kid that she's babysitting, onto Jamie Lee Curtis, Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that the idea of babysitting is kind of this universal idea because you also have the idea of like parents who are leaving their kids with other kids and, you know, it's a big responsibility for like a teen to be babysitting. And so if they're not taking the responsibility seriously, then that opens up other kind of horrors. And this is just more of like you know, a literal one rather than the figurative things that could go wrong when you're babysitting. So Gablands is the one that actually had the idea of titling the film Halloween and having it take place on Halloween night. And the reason for that was budgetary reasons. It's one night, right? It'll take place, you know, one location or just a few locations. We can really lock it down. And John Carpenter was thrilled with this idea, you know, and and they ran with it, you know, because thankfully no film had been called Halloween, you know, at that point. I mean, what a score that was. Well, you know, I don't think Halloween was such a big deal as it became after that movie. Like, yes, kids went out and trick-or-treated and did all this kind of stuff, but... I think Halloween kind of became more of an industry, like in the 80s, you know? So I think that this came along just at the right time when that change was happening. And it's really smart to say, let's put it at Halloween because you already have all these spooky things that are going on and you kind of just get to build on that. You know, you're already, you've already got the kids watching scary movies and it's dark and, you know, they're already creeping each other out. <laughs> Especially the little kids really wanted to watch these scary movies. So it makes a lot of sense because a lot of the work is already done for you. That being said, they shot it in March. (laughs) So I guess they had a hell of a time 
finding pumpkins. And then also it was really funny because I never would have thought of this, but we were watching it. I was like, oh, they have a point. Like they had these, they didn't have any leaves. You know, this is supposed to take place in Haddonfield, Illinois in October. And so obviously the leaves would be falling off the trees and stuff. But this was March in Pasadena, I think. Uh, so they had to go buy leaves and kind of paint them brown. And then they just had to, you know, keep reusing them. And so if, when Jamie Lee Curtis is like walking down the street, she'll have these leaves blowing around her. But then if you look in the background, like there's no leaves anywhere. There's nothing going on. And in a few of the background shots, you can see a palm tree. <laughs> but overall, they did a pretty good job shooting around it because I didn't really think about this not being, you know, where it was supposed to be because parts of it were shot in Pasadena. And parts of the neighborhoods, I think, were in Hollywood, actually, like Orange Grove Ave or something, which is, or Genesee Street, we saw. Mm -hmm. And those are, like, in Hollywood, Hollywood. So, um, it was pretty funny, though, when I did see a palm tree poking out at one point. <laughs> but they did a good job. I never would have thought about it. But I guess Tommy Lee Wallace said that the <laughs> the leaves were, like, a big budget thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, wow, okay. Because they had to buy, like you know, ones that they could paint and reuse. Really smart. I mean, these people are really good problem solvers. It was back to something we said last week that we really love, like, they're kind of... John Carpenter has, like, this do-it-yourself kind of feel to things, but he would put together this team of people who all had that. Right. And I really like how you characterize that as being, like, you know, a road show, you know? It does feel like, you know, a bunch of young people, because these people were all young. They were, like, only slightly older than the teens who they were supposed to be, you know, the the movie was supposed to be about. And they're, like, making a movie, and they're just all, you know, throwing in and doing whatever. Like, Tommy Lee Wallace was, like, art direction, production design, editing, all this stuff at the same time. And he was also the hands of Michael Myers. Yes. You know, that was very interesting. You know, you had Nick Castle, and he was called The Shape because he was Michael Myers for most of the film, except for the actual reveal at the end of the film. And this was played by Tony Moran when you saw the face. Um, so it, it's like, yes, everyone had multiple roles on this film even if they weren't credited for them people were jumping in yeah you know the art department i believe used the station wagon that michael myers drives around in which is hilarious and then they also just had like one like kind of you know winnebago that they used for everything else i mean this was a very very tight movie in terms of budget now one thing that i didn't notice when we went back through maybe they corrected it is this film famously left in the california license plates yeah. and this was something that people gave a lot of static for for years so That's when funny. we watched it i didn't see them did you i didn't see them i really wasn't i don't know i don't necessarily go to like pay attention to that kind of stuff i mean they were referring like jamie lee curse was referring to like the camera shadow mm -hmm. and that opening tracking shot i've never thought about that once but you know there are people who will watch a movie just to look for those goofs and things like that yeah. but you know overall again there's a palm tree but i didn't even think about that there's no palm trees in illinois in october 
But, you know, I was like, all right. I, I didn't think about it. They they did, did a good enough job. And considering they did it with just over $300,000 is mm-hmm. ridiculous. I mean, that's unbelievable that they were able to accomplish what they did on that shoestring. Well, the big thing in the movie was that John Carpenter said that he wanted to shoot the film in anamorphic widescreen. So two, three, five to one. That was what one of his demands was. And all of his films, except his first film, Dark Star, and his last film, The Ward, were shot, you know, like that. Also, there was a processing plant that he said he wanted his film developed at because they were the best in town. Um, and he just wanted, you know, really just the best product to, to go out there. Now, something that we should talk about is actually this opening shot. So... The opening shot of Halloween. Okay, so we have this point of view shot of Michael Myers. Now, Michael Myers is being played, of course, by Deborah Hill, as Georgia mentioned. And this is innovative. This is using a Steadicam from Panavision. So it was called the Panaglide. And um, Days of Heaven and Halloween were two of the very first films to use this camera. So Steadicam, if you're not familiar with it, is something that was invented in 1975 by Garrett Brown. And basically it's like if you have a a long stick that you hold vertically and you have like a, a camera stabilizer and you have the camera on top. So it allows the camera operator to move around holding this stick and it's a smooth shot. So it's like you're you're floating. So in the beginning of Halloween, we go through the point of view of Michael Myers. And he goes up to his house. He goes around to the side of the house. He sees his sister and the boyfriend fooling around on the couch. And they decide to go upstairs. Then we see Michael go into the house, goes into the kitchen, picks up the knife. Now, that shot has Deborah Hill's hand going in, and it's also kind of out of focus, and that's because of the type of camera that they were using. They weren't able to have that part of the frame in focus, so it's something that, that hasn't been changed, and it's just accepted. So then we see Michael, you know, he's coming around. We see the boyfriend after his, I don't know, 40-second sex marathon, <laughs> coming down the stairs, putting on his sweater. I mean, I don't think he did a good job, you know. And I then, don't even know how they made, made it out of their clothes <laughs> that quickly, but yeah, right? apparently they did. It was just, it was, yeah. They had, like, breakaway Velcro clothes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really fast, just like push-button ejaculation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, boop, oh, done, all right. And so, you know... The boyfriend leaves, Michael Myers goes up the stairs, and as he goes up the stairs, he sees a clown mask on the ground that he puts on his face, and he's wearing like a clown outfit. And again, you know, we're still in this point of view, we're seeing through the mask, we see his sister, and she's sitting on a bench brushing her hair, she's in her underwear, and she's topless, and then... Michael Myers murders his sister, or as it is in real life, Deborah Hill murders <laughs> Michael Myers' sister. I mean, we kind of aren't looking at, like, the knife going in or anything like that, but, you know, there's a stabbing, there's blood, mm-hmm. and, yeah, she's, like, dead on the ground at the end of this kind of action. Well, and then we see Michael leave the house, 
go out the front door, and then Michael's parents arrive, and they take the mask off of him, and we're like, oh my god. And then we, when they take the mask off, it's when we switch to not being in that point of view anymore, and they do a crane shot, um, backing up from the the tableau. Ooh. Yeah. So, but the first of all of that up to the point where they take, you know, they take his mask off and they, you know, reverse it. All of that is one unbroken shot. Well, they, they filmed it that way, but I actually do think there's one possibly two cuts. You're right. There's, you're right. There are two cuts, but it's filmed to look like this unbroken kind of tracking shot. Yes. They did a cut when he picks up the mask. Yes. And I think that they may have also done a cut um, during the murder. Okay. Or just right after. Um, but it's it's meant to, what I was trying to say, which I did not, is that they, <laughs> they made it look like it was just one continuous kind of shot. And that's really interesting because that goes back to multiple things. One of them would be rope. Another Hitchcock movie, which was the entire movie was shot to appear like one continuous unbroken shot. Mm -hmm. It isn't. Anytime they like zoom into like somebody's black jacket or something like that, they're making a cut. But the whole idea was real time. The movie's real time and it's it's an unbroken continuous take. It's also interesting because the they did film it you know, as one take. And the camera crew and everyone was changing everything, moving everything out of the way as fast as they could to make sure that when the camera came back around, they were okay. That blew my mind. Yeah. That totally blew my mind. Yeah. Teamwork. They were saying that, like, you know, they come around to the... So they, they start at the front of the house. They move around to the side and are looking into the window. And then while they are walking around the back, which is where Michael enters the house... There's people, like, running in there, moving lights, moving furniture, doing all this stuff. And then they go into the house, you know, and and so while the camera is not actually on a particular location within that house, people are, like, moving things around and resetting. Yeah. And I think that's insane. Like, I mean, that shows you what a team this was. I mean, and another thing with that is that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis mentioned, and and I think that Tommy Lee Wallace mentioned it as well, and the other, that this house that they shot as the Myers house was actually this ruin. So later on, you know, in the present day of the film, that's actually what the house looked like. And in this flashback sequence, that's actually how they made the house look as if it was restored. So they shot that part later after everyone in the cast and crew pitched in to kind of rehab this house and dress it and make it look like a usable, nice house instead of like a, you know, ghost house, which is what it turned out to be later. Yeah, it's good that you bring up Rope because that's one I didn't think of. And in Rope, they had a very similar situation where they had to have this specific choreography to have things moved out of the way for the camera. Yeah. You know, it it's uh, it's really great. I did not think of Rope. I, I didn't think of Rope. I just thought of Rope. I mean, it's funny because, again, we've done a lot of prep and, and yeah. watched a lot of things and thought about a lot of things. And there's another movie that we definitely discussed, but Rope just hit me right now. The other movie... 
however, which John also watched this week. Touch of Evil is the other film that we're referencing here, the Orson Welles film. Deborah Hill talked about how she absolutely adored the unbroken take at the beginning of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. So it's a three and a half minute shot. You can see it online on YouTube and it's incredible because they didn't have a steady cam back then. They actually had a camera on a crane you know, and I think it must have been mounted on some type of vehicle to get around. Yeah, it had to be. I mean, when we watched it, I was trying to think about how they did this, and it was nutty. Like, I mean, they had to be moving around. It must have been on a truck or something on a and, and stuck to a crane and very much stabilized somehow also. So I don't know how they did that, but... And this is an older movie, so it's yes. like this is definitely pre-Steadicam, like you say. So I don't know. They, but but it looks phenomenal, and it is a very long shot that just keeps following like this car, you know, through the street. There's so many people in this shot, walking like pedestrians, and uh, it's and cars and other things. So it's like choreographed to the hilt. Um, and, and yeah, this, this obviously isn't as complex as that. Um, and they had the Panaglide at this point, but it does kind of lend the same suspense. Oh, it does. Yeah. Cause well, that's what the touch of evil scene does is it builds the suspense because you're following a car that's had a bomb planted in it. Right. That's the opening of Touch of Evil. You actually see someone with a bomb. They show you the bomb and they plant the bomb in the trunk of this vehicle. Then we see a couple get into the vehicle and then we follow them as they drive through town. And it's like because of the, the camera and the placement, you know, the car will be further from you. And as the audience member, you feel good about it. You're like, OK, at least the explosion is not near me. Somehow I actually felt like this bomb explosion was going to impact me <laughs> in my living room. You know what? I mean, this is 1958. So like what, 62, later, 64 yeah. years later, whatever. I can't do math, but you get the idea. So it's just like really crazy that they have this. And then they actually run into Charlton Heston and uh, his wife. Guess what? Played by Janet Lee. Yeah, Janet Lee just popping up everywhere. <laughs> right? It's incredible. So it's like, okay, we have Janet Lee again. And there's actually a, a border crossing. They're coming from Mexico into the United States. So they are stopped at the border. And the tension just keeps building. Because the female passenger in the vehicle says, I hear a ticking, I hear a ticking, and no one pays attention to her. Every time people get away from the car, you feel better. And when the car finally goes out of frame, you're like, oh, thank God. And then Janet Lee and Charlton Heston kiss, and as soon as they kiss, their lips touch, you hear the car explode off screen. It's, so, it's really just well done. It's excellent clearly like super planned you know the way that they did it and the timing of it is brilliant right and they were able to do that in this too because you know we don't necessarily know like right at the beginning of this tracking shot that something's bad with this little michael myers kid right you know we don't even i don't think know that he's a kid yeah, do we? We don't know anything. I mean, what we it know... It could be a peeping Tom. Exactly. And well, and guess what? That again ties back into Psycho. Because what happens? Norman Bates puts Marion Crane 
in the room that is the closest to the office, and he looks through a peephole into her place. You see, there's always this thing in the film with Michael Myers trying to look in on something. This is a theme that's carried throughout the film. You know, we see it in the high school, right? Laurie Strode actually sees Michael Myers in the station wagon outside the window. You know what I mean? In the street while she's in school. She's sitting at her desk and then she sees him across the street in the car. And it's just like, wow. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of this kind of peeping Tom Voyeur kind of thing happening because Laurie Strode keeps seeing Michael Myers everywhere. He appears from behind a bush, then he disappears. You know, it, it, it's it's weird. And again, we have that same sexual frustration. Yeah. You know, um, it's, yeah. Or repression or whatever we that, want to yes. call it. I mean, I think it's less explicit in uh, Halloween. Like in Psycho, they really, like, explained it. There's, like, a whole five-minute scene at the end. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or the psych, I guess he's a psychologist or something. I don't know. Is explaining it. To, or maybe he's a police person he's with the police but they're at the police station and he's explaining it like he's a psychologist so you know it's it is what it is and this we definitely have the psychiatrist but he doesn't really say anything psychological he just says he's evil yeah like he's just i mean and that's the funny thing when we were watching it this time i was like if you didn't you know already know what was going to happen in this loomis just kind of seems like a little crazy himself. Yeah. Like, he just is like, this guy's nuts. He's evil. He's like, I just, we can't let him out because of the evil. You know, and then we watched these scenes that they had re- that they had done later for, like, the TV version to make it longer. Right. And it's just this one, one of these is a long scene of Loomis just telling people, He's evil. You can't let him out of jail. He has to stay. And they're like, well, what about, you know, why Why is he so... He's evil. I mean, that's all he keeps saying. So, you know, Loomis just kind of seems like he has it out for this guy sometimes. Oh, he totally does. And, and Loomis is also just really skittish. You know, when they're in, oh, yeah. you know, this old Myers house, it's just like this old ghost house that's in ill repair. You know, he's up there with Sheriff Brackett, played by Charles Cyphers, who, you know, you would know as Charlie Donovan from Major League. Um, and we talked about Major League a million years ago on yeah. this show. Um, and also Charles Cyphers shows up again in The Fog. Um, but the point here is that it's like there's some kind of gutter that, that falls and hits the window. And Loomis is so amped up, he, like, pulls out a fucking piece. <laughs> and you're like, Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, he's just ready to, like, shoot somebody up. Like, he's just good to go. Yeah. And, uh, of course, the sh- this, you know, Cyphers as this cop is like, you know, really? <laughs> I mean, we're, we're more worried, I think, about, like, Michael Myers getting blown to shit than we are about Michael Myers, you know, although, you know, he's already, you know, stalking around and we know he's going to kill people at this point. But, you know, Loomis seems really overamped from the beginning. Yeah. Although that opening scene with Loomis at the at the mental institution is absolutely terrifying. Okay, let's talk about that. Yes. Let's talk about that. So we have this scene 
where Dr. Loomis is being driven by a nurse to this mental institution to transport Michael Myers. And when they get to the institution, it's, you know, late at night. We actually found out they shot it at the L.A. Reservoir, which was very interesting. Um, they get to this institution very late at night, and they can actually see that the patients have gotten out. You can see, you know, like their, their nightgowns, you know, like these gowns that you'll see patients in just walking around, these johnnies. And in the light, it's terrifying. It's ghostly. Yes, yeah. yes. And they're just walking around like zombies. You're like, oh, my God, what what is happening here? And what ends up happening is Michael Myers is actually in this crew. Michael Myers or The Shape. Uh, is played by Nick Castle at this point. And so he's wearing this Johnny. It's three in the morning. He said it was freezing. And, you know, he didn't know this part. But Dean Cundy, the director of photography, said, okay, turn on the hoses. <laughs> and like, so they just started shooting them, you know, with cold water to make it look like it was raining. And he said... <laughs> You know, Nick Castle said he could just feel the cold, you know, because it was just like this thin Johnny and it just goes through. And he had to actually jump up on the roof. And it's very scary because you can see him, you know, just for a split second. You're like, oh, my God. You know, it's a very, very frightening scene. And then what happens is we actually have Tommy Lee Wallace playing the hands of Michael Myers because, you know, that's what he does. And he comes down and he hits the window. Now, the window smashes. Michael Myers is supposed to have this superhuman strength. So the way that they achieve that is they actually put a wrench in Tommy Lee Wallace's hand. And so when he hits the window, that's what makes it crack. But it's edited so well that you can't really see it. Like, no. we didn't pause it, but we watched it three times in a row, and I didn't see any wrench. I didn't see anything. So, you know, Michael Myers uh, manages to steal the station wagon, which is, again, <laughs> fucking incredible, because he's been in this institution since he's been a young boy. He knows how to drive. He really is great on the road, yeah. you know, clean well, driving record, you know. I mean, that was what I didn't understand either. Like, how does this guy drive? I think somebody talked about that in the commentary, too. They're like, when did this guy learn to drive? Who taught him? And it was very, and I think they even say it in the movie. You know, when they might, Loomis they is might. like... Put a know, hat on it. Loomis is like, how did he drive? But it's really funny. And then, yeah, he's just driving around town, like, the whole time during the day. And right. you're just like, oh, my God, really? I didn't... I never think about that until I watch the movie again. I never think about, like, Michael Myers behind the wheel. Because, I mean, it kind of doesn't... Like, it just doesn't register to me. Like, you just think of him as, like, this person walking around. Like, Nick Castle does an amazing job of making his movement seem very unreal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's almost like when we talked about Terminator 2 and we talked about uh, Robert Patrick as the T-1000. Like, he has those bird-like kind of movements or animal-like movements. And that's what I feel like here. Like, his his movements are predatory and more like animal than human um but somehow he's still driving a car 
Do you think he's jamming out to tunes? That's what I want to know. Do you think he's know. jamming out? That's a good question. Like, is he just silently riding in the car? Did he stop and get a burger? Did he get a sandwich? <laughs> Did mean, he talk at the drive-thru? Something happened. Like, he definitely killed that guy. We have oh, the, yeah. He, like, hooked in with some truck, like a pickup truck guy. Right. And, and killed that guy and stole his clothes mm-hmm. so that he wasn't wearing the Johnny anymore. Yeah. So how did that happen? Did he pretend to be stranded on the side of the road and call, you know, for uh, roadside assistance? <laughs> like, how did that happen? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that went down. Yeah, I we mean... didn't see it. We didn't see all those <laughs> moments. But, you know, that would be a great sketch or movie, mm-hmm. like the unseen part of Halloween where, you know, Michael Myers is driving. Because they mentioned that it's not close, like the the place where he's the mental institution is is not right next to Haddonfield like right. he had to drive for an hour or something to get there so what happened on that what if he had to go to the bathroom and like you know you have to ask for the key for the bathroom <laughs> you know what would he do in that situation well and he didn't have the mask on at that point he didn't get that no. until he got into town because we find out that he's like robbed the hardware store i guess it's a hardware store or that's a general store or something yeah why the hell does the hardware store have a halloween mask i don't know you never know i mean if it's a small town i guess they may have just been like a general store that sold everything but you know he's still just regular looking guy but in a johnny during that drive so i guess he could have just gone in and you know indicated he needed to go to the bathroom somehow if he needed just the key point to his crotch or <laughs> something like that like i'd like to see like just you know, Michael Myers just like taking a shit in the bush. You know what I mean? Like, what happens? But yeah, I think that <laughs> I think these are important questions to ask, guys. You know? Yeah. Nobody, you know, like this is, these are inquiring minds want to know. Michael Myers drove a lot. He had to get gasoline. You know, these are he had to do normal things. And people That's what I'm saying are, roadside assistance. How did that uh, tow truck kind of pickup come out there? Who knows? Who knows? Because it was right next to a payphone. Right. So maybe he did call roadside assistance. I wonder what he says. Do you think like he he joked around a little? Do you think there were any jokes? I have no idea. Like, hey, uh, I'm stuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like he's Norm oh McDonald. What if he sounds like Norm McDonald as an adult? That takes a lot of the fear out of it, doesn't it? But it, it adds or a lot more it joy. <laughs> it adds joy. Oh, my lands. But what he does, you know, at that hardware store is they say he takes rope and he takes a couple knives and he takes that mask. And then, you know, he's kind of set up. And I feel like he does kind of, you know, abandon the vehicle, you know, because then he's just kind of on foot. He's hoofing it. Yeah. And he feels comfortable at that point. Well, he's going around the backyards and peeping again, so you can't really drive the wagon up in there. No, I think he would have. I think that like <laughs> I think that he really liked the performance of that station wagon. And I also love the fact that it says on the door for official use, you know, or for official use only. And I'm like, Are you kidding me? Like that's incredible. It's you know it's really a lot to deal with. So but the mask, let's talk about the mask sure. for a minute. So, like, they did have, you know, some different thoughts about what they wanted that mask to be. And at the beginning, you know, the kid has the clown mask. So, when Tommy Lee Wallace went to buy another mask, he looked at a different mask that was like a clown. Like, kind of the sad clown look. And there are, uh, clowns are scary. So, it would have been an interesting choice 
But it would have been a totally different movie. Oh, yeah. Because what they did do is they found this, like, Captain Kirk mask. (laughs) And they kind of changed it up. Like, they kind of changed the color to paint it just completely white. And they took some of the hair off the side and things like that. And so it's not, in my mind, recognizable in any way as Captain Kirk anymore. No. But it does, like what you had said before, it's like very expressionless and like dead looking. And that, I think, was really successful. So it's one of those happy accidents that we talk about where people aren't really sure what they're going to do. And then they just, you know, randomly make some weird decisions and it turns out to be fantastic. Yeah, because they opened up the eye sockets and they made the hair more wild, you know. And I think, like, making the hair wild is a bold choice that really worked out because, I mean, he could have looked like a troll doll, you know. Like, just really goofy. But they they really made it terrifying. And then all the detail that we see on the mask, this was very interesting. It was Dean Cundy's expert lighting. It's just a mask. And, you know, all the details, all the shadows, all the nuances come from his lighting. The lighting in this film is something to behold. You know, we watched this 4K disc, and we couldn't get over what Dean Cundey was able to do. And this is, we're not even starting on the fog yet, but he is incredible. He went on to work with Steven Spielberg. Um, You know, he was the DP on Jurassic Park. He was the DP on Hook. You know, he has like a million credits, you know, because he's so good. The other thing we should mention The actual Panaglide operator, the guy's name was Raymond Stella, and he is the person that was the camera operator for that opening shot, you know, where we go through the house and we see the murder. And he went on also to work on Hook. And he also went on, you know, to work with Steven Spielberg on Jurassic Park. You know, it's just like these guys, all of the people that worked with John Carpenter, They had a wonderful career, you know, like big names. You know, when you look at the people that worked on this, you know, there were crew people that worked on Back to the Future. You know what I mean? Like just massive, massive pictures, Mm -hmm. Schindler's List. You know, the list goes on and on. Well, and Tommy Lee Wallace went on to direct Halloween 3. Yes. um, And and the the TV miniseries of It, Stephen King's It, Mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, this was kind of like these people, you know, they're young, they had a lot of energy, they had a lot of of stamina and, like, interest in making this great, you know, work together. Yes. And, you know, I don't really think anybody was complaining, like, oh, you know, I I didn't sign on to do this and this, you know. Right. They just went for it, and it was kind of like a learning experience that ended up paying off huge for them because they were in demand, you know, and they happen to be unbelievably talented people. Like Dean Cundey in particular is so smart um, as a cinematographer and lighter. And, you know, I do, we're not going to talk about all of it here because it's secondhand and boring to hear me (laughs) and John talk about all these great things that he did. But I highly recommend like going and listening to some of the interviews with him or even doing like the commentary tracks to hear him talk about how he makes these lighting decisions and camera decisions because it's just brilliant. Like you're listening to this person who is so creative and smart and... 
I just, I loved it. I mean, I'm kind of a camera and light geek anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when we started getting into doing movies ourselves a little bit back, you know, at this point, five, 10, 10 years ago plus, um, we, you know, one of the, the doors that got me in on it was wanting to do more with lighting. Like, I'm very interested in lighting and what it can do, you know, with a movie. And I love going back and watching movies that are very innovative with what they do with light. Um, Touch of Evil being a great example of that. And Orson Welles being kind of a, a lighting movie guy, too. Like, yep. he has a lot of movies that have great lighting work. And Hitchcock was a genius. He knew exactly what he wanted because he really worked with the crew people. He wanted to know the lenses. He wanted to know what effect they would produce so that he could get the best product. I and mean, that's Tom- Carpenter, too. It's right there. I mean, Tommy Lee Wallace also was a writer on Halloween 3, which oh, wow. he directed. Nick Castle directed The Last Starfighter, yeah. you know, which was huge. It's just like you just see, oh, wow, these people just kept going And it was hit after hit. So, you know, being able to see, you know, these two films, being able to see Halloween and The Fog, where where frankly, I'd say it's like the dream team. You know, it it just really, I, I mean, it felt so good to watch these films and I'd happily watch them again. To bring in a couple more things that we found that actually, you know, call back, we're going to go to Psycho. So Lila Crane actually goes into the Bates house. She goes into the basement, and there she discovers Mrs. Bates, or should I say the corpse of Mrs. Bates. And then her arm swings back, and it hits this bare bulb, and it starts swinging. And then at that point, Norman Bates appears in the doorway dressed as his mother, and he has a knife, and he's ready to kill Lila Crane. At that point, Sam Loomis shows up and stops Norman Bates from killing Lila Crane. This is very similar to 1978's Halloween because Laurie Strode is in the bedroom with Michael Myers. And what happens? Dr. Sam Loomis, played by Donald Pleasance, shows up with his six-shooter and shoots Michael Myers off the balcony. So he saves the day. So in both films, Sam Loomis, the doctor and the regular dude, (laughs) save the day. That's right. Also, we have in Touch of Evil, again, we need to remember we have Janet Lee, who is the mother, of course, of Jamie Lee Curtis. So in the film Touch of Evil, Janet Lee is actually drugged, and she's out cold in this hotel room. And at that point, what happens is Orson Welles comes in and murders this guy named Uncle Joe Grandy. During this scene, there's this fight, of course, because no one wants to die. And Uncle Joe Grandy actually goes and he punches out, you know, these these kind of slats. They almost look like blinds above the doorway. And he punches out the glass. And so what happens is Orson Welles, he strangles this character. And we have... Janet Lee, she's upside down on the bed, so her head is at the foot of the bed. And this character, Uncle Joe Grandy, is actually slumped over, you know, the, the foot of the bed, you know, on the footrail, I guess we want to call it. Um, and so his head is there and his eyes are bulged out because he's been strangled. What happens then is Janet Lee wakes up and screams. 
this is very similar to Halloween because in Halloween, Laurie Strode goes into the house and she discovers all of these corpses of the people that she knew as classmates in the room. You know, they're dead. Laurie Strode goes into the room and she sees Annie laying on the bed and there's actually the tombstone. Of you know. Judith, yeah. <laughs> That was been stolen and Deborah Hill dug a hole. Right, right. Deborah Hill probably moved it, put it there too. Maybe she made the tombstone. Who knows? <laughs> Everybody wears many she hats. She's instrumental to everything in this, so why not? Right? So it's like we have, you know, everything set up in here. It's almost like a house of horrors with these corpses. They're all, you know, like show pieces in a museum. Yeah. yeah. He, he's like displayed the bodies. And yeah, there's a definite body display thing going on with Grandy and Touch of Evil. And you actually have like a light flashing kind of thing going on in that scene also. Yes, you do. So just like in Halloween and also in Psycho with the bare bulb swinging and in Touch of Evil, it's more like I guess there's some kind of a flashing sign maybe outside the room that kind of is randomly illuminating yes. that room, too. In Halloween, in the final scene, Lori is in the bedroom, and she goes into this closet, and she ties the door shut with a scarf, and she's cowering in the corner. And just like Uncle Joe Grandy punches out these blinds, we actually have Michael Myers punch through kind of the, the blinds of the closet door. And when he does that, he hits the bare bulb, just like in Psycho. So we have that swinging light bulb in the room. And so it's like, okay, we have our call back to Psycho. Of course, we have, you know, the massive knife once again. So we, we have that. And yes, we do have, you know, the flashing light that you mentioned in Touch of Evil. And that is actually very similar to a sequence in The Fog that we'll get it to. Is. Yeah. It's, There's it's all, so much. <laughs> they're all like very much tied together. There's one last point that I have on Halloween that I do want to bring up. Orson Welles strangling Grandy, okay, with this cord is very similar to Michael Myers strangling Linda in the bedroom in Halloween. Mm, yes. It, it's, a, it's a very similar situation. And they're in a house in Halloween and we're in the bedroom. And then we're in this motel or hotel in Touch of Evil. But, I mean, the bed is there. It's like, you know, it's one room for everything. Well, yeah. And we do think of Michael Myers in terms of being a stabby boy. Um, <laughs> but he also strangles a lot of people in this movie. So he does, like, the strangling. And if I can just say one more Hitchcock movie, because, boy, I haven't done enough. Frenzy yes, um, is a, a Hitchcock movie where you have this sexually you know off-kilter dude who strangles women with neckties um so again it's all the same kind of stuff going around and around and around and you know it's really interesting just to look at it that way um i think that orson wells in touch of evil uses pantyhose i think oh. it was it was pantyhose that oh. he grabbed I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry. But I think that it's pantyhose that he uses to strangle Grandy. Mm. And because Janet Lee is not, she's kind of like half dressed or whatever in this bed. 
yeah, she's drugged and she's out. And I, I do think that you're right that she's kind of half-dressed. Because yeah. they were trying to make it look like she was on some drug binge. Yeah. Uh, she was really loading up on marijuana cigarettes. Well, like, then they shot her up, too. It was really yeah. creepy. It, it's, a, it's a weird scene. But yeah, like, yeah. What killed me is that they just kept acting like, you know... They're like, yeah, we left some some mar- some cigarette ends or whatever around the room. Like, her crazy marijuana smoking was really doing it. <laughs> yeah, the marijuana stubs we found, you know, and yeah, they, it's wild. And the bad guys like, we blew uh, the the marijuana smoke on her, you know. It was yeah, like, okay. yeah, that was it. Like, we're really seeing her as like some crazy craven drug user because they blew marijuana smoke all around the room. Once again, though, what are we doing? We're looking at morality. Yes. We're saying that she is a person that's having extramarital sex and that she is using drugs. Yeah. So she is not part of the program. Yep. And, and needs to be got. punished. And that's, yep. you know, they're using that in that movie. So, yeah, lots of lots of combinations of different things. Lots of homage here. Right. Um, but really done well. Yes. Because they take, you know, these things from these old movies and kind of create a whole new thing with it that then ends up being copied, you know, over and over again. Like, yeah, John Carpenter, a lot of people borrowed his homework, you know what I mean? (laughs) So one thing that we didn't talk about yet with Halloween that is a good segue into the fog is the music. Oh my gosh, how did we forget that? So the score of Halloween is like mega iconic. Yeah. Uh, You can't get it out of your head. Um, And that is, of course, John Carpenter. Um, It's that like piano, like staccato kind of thing um, that just keeps playing over and over and over. And now it's like stuck in my brain because we watched it so many times in one day that time. Um, But I think that the music in that movie is so crazy meaningful and it sticks with you so much and like it's again disturbing um the the speed of it and the sound like the kind of shrillness of it are really well done and at the same time it evokes like this feeling of nervousness and suspense Mm -hmm. and in the fog it's slightly different, but still kind of similar in a way. Like, the music isn't the same, but it's close. Yes. You know? It feels like it's it's the next generation of the Halloween theme. But going back to the Halloween theme, what's very interesting is John Carpenter said that his father taught him on bongos kind of this 5-4 rhythm. And when it came to record the Halloween theme, that's what he went back to. So it's so amazing. It's like, in a way, you know, his dad wrote the Halloween theme. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. And well, and I think that that's really awesome. I love that. And I think that the difference between the Halloween kind of version of the score here and the Fog score is that the Halloween one is very sharp. You know, it is like that very staccato, very like rhythmic piano and then in the fog it does feel a little bit more diluted yeah and 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 that fits with like the fog absolutely you know it's kind of like you're hearing that same music but through a fog or 
filtered through something that's like slowing it or making it less sharp. And I love that. I think that's so smart. It's brilliant. I would say that the Halloween music again goes back to Hitchcock and Psycho because Bernard Herrmann wrote the Psycho music that dot 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 dot. Yeah. You know, and it's like both the Halloween music and the Psycho music make me think about stabbing. Yes, and he and actually Carpenter referred to Herman and said that he was a big influence on him. That's awesome. It's that's really awesome. One other thing, musically speaking, before we move on, that's pretty interesting, is the band the Coupe de Villes. Now the Coupe de Villes is made up of John Carpenter, Tommy Lee Wallace, and Nick Castle. They have a band, and their music appears in a lot of John Carpenter's films. Yeah. Okay, so like in this, in Halloween, we hear Don't Fear the Reaper, and then the other song we hear is from the Coupe de Villes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I knew they were in the fog mm-hmm. because Stevie Wayne mentions them and says, I'm going to play one by the Coupe de Villes on her radio station. But I didn't remember they were in Halloween also. I didn't either at first. I had to look it up. I was like, wow. There's just, again, there's so much with all of the people involved in this. And all of them are geniuses that could individually build rocket ships to the moon. You know, like they could do anything. And I I, I love it. So it's like keeping track of the achievements a little hard. But we're trying here. And, uh, you know, it's where we're headed. The Coupe de Ville's. Very cool. They actually had a music video when Big Trouble in Little China came oh, out. Oh, that's fun. They had an album, actually. They actually had a... What yeah, the they heck? Had an album. Those people can do it all. I know. I know. Well, um, are we ready to move on to the fog at this point, you think? Wow. I, I mean, it's hard to leave <laughs> Halloween. I'm sure there'll be something else I remember. But yeah, let's, let's right. move forward. All right. So, the fog, ghost story. This is like a new take on a horror movie. Halloween had the slasher kind of a more realistic thing yeah. now we're going full supernatural in the fog so this film actually starts out with a quote from an edgar Allan poe poem is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream and i thought that that was really cool because last week you and i talked about how edgar Allan poe is kind of like our gateway drug into like the horror you know genre and uh, Deborah Hill said that that was kind of the same for her too that she really loved reading Edgar Allan Poe well that's why the the material really clicks with us I mean these people I mean we seem to share a lot of similar interests you know (laughs) yeah I mean Edgar Allan Poe incredible it gets you going they have this love for these classic films. Yeah. You know? And comics and yes. things like that. Video games. I mean, John Carpenter loves Borderlands. That's awesome. I know. That's so cool. Yeah. And they love music and all this kind of stuff. So it's really... And they like doing every little thing. Yeah. Which we do too. And I don't know if it's because we're all control freaks. <laughs> or just because we have varied interests. Or a little of column A and a little column B. Probably that. Um, but anyway... So let's talk about the way the fog starts out, because every time we watch it and I remember the <laughs> opening, I love it um, because it starts out with kind of this campfire ghost story where John Hausman is telling kind of a story about the Antonio Bay Island kind of area, which is where they are. And he is telling it to these kids, supposedly on the beach 
around the campfire. It almost has like a hypnotic effect. Yes. So the movie starts out, you know, you have this black frame and then the pocket watch just comes in a frame. It's just hanging there. And then John Houseman comes in and just clicks it shut. And it's just like, whoa, the spell has been cast. <laughs> you know, then he starts talking, you know, gorgeous voice. It It's the best audio book you've ever seen and heard. I feel that seeing him adds even more to the story. He lets you know just how important it is. He tells you that we have five minutes before midnight and all of these ghosts are supposed to appear at midnight, which is terrifying. And then we also cut over to the children watching him. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because the, the children that are around the campfire are actually children of the crew. <laughs> yeah. Right. I think it's like Dean Cundy's kid is one of them that's yeah. out there. It's some different ones. And to keep that hypnotic thing going, they have that electronic zoom, it feels like. It yes. doesn't feel natural yeah. on the word suddenly. They just zoom in to John Houseman, and it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel like it was done by a camera. It feels like some kind of like alien robot was watching <laughs> this, was like, Zzz. Let's check this out, you know? That's funny. Yeah. Well, and he's dressed like an old ship captain, kind of. Oh, yeah, that's for true. For some reason. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he drove the kids out there, you know? <laughs> little midnight ride. I like that there's just a bunch of kids out at midnight with this old man. Oh, yeah, it's fine. You know, what are they doing? <laughs> Nobody knows. We're just going out with John Houseman, Ma. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, they, you know, they didn't shoot this at night. This was, even though it seems very much like... A location shot. They shot this, you know, on a set with, uh, you know, kind of fabric or whatever. Duvetine, yeah. And it was bales of hay. Mm -hmm. And Tommy Lee Wallace, production designer, you know, also doing some editing duties. I mean, this guy's everywhere. I <laughs> Jack mean, of all trades. It, uh, yeah, incredible. And in Coupe de Ville's. <laughs> right? Just keeps it going. But I really thought it was on the beach. And yeah. in one of the commentaries, when people were like, that's not at the beach. Yeah. I mean, it feels like the beach. The campfire's perfect. The atmosphere is perfect. John Houseman's perfect. It feels perfect. cold. Like it you, does. You have the sense that it's cold. But it was funny. Like, we're watching outtakes of it, and he forgets his lines. <laughs> yeah, it was He's just so like, good. oh, shit. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I love how the camera goes up. Yeah. You know, when we're done, we go up into the black and then we come up right at Point Reyes, right at the water, mm -hmm. you know, right at that coastline. That Stenson Beach area, which you and I have actually been to. Yes, yes. And it's, it is such a great location. Like, they couldn't have picked a better spot. No. For this story because it just fits perfectly. Yeah, and it has that lighthouse. Yeah, I mean, how could you go wrong with that lighthouse? And the fact that we have a DJ in a lighthouse, that's <laughs> something I'm never going to forget. No. I mean, what's the? why would that happen? Who knows? But I love it. Me and too. it works. Like, it, it's such a smart idea. And the lighthouse that they chose to shoot at, because they went to different lighthouses. Right. Um, you know, on the North California coast, looking for the right one. And they picked this particular one in Point Reyes. But... It is different. It's like a squat little building, not right. like, you know, your tall column one that you that you usually think of or that I usually think of when I think of a lighthouse. Mm -hmm. This one is like down a long, long series of stairs, which you actually see, you know, Adrian Barbeau walking down while she's listening to her promos that she just got in the mail. 
And it's like this squat little building at the bottom of the stairs. And it has like the Fresnel light, which is what lighthouses have. But it's not like in this raised kind of tall building. So it's different. So what's also interesting about that lighthouse is the interiors are set. We're not at the location. And again, when you're up top in that lighthouse with the windows, I feel like we're on the beach. I mean, it's such a well-done, well-done film. I mean, and all the things that we get to see that actually happen at the radio station, like the the board that that sweats water and then explodes. I mean, just incredible. And that weird voice, that murmuring, scary voice. Oh, yeah, that is creepy. And I didn't notice that really every single time we've watched it. But this last time it really hit me and I was like, (laughs) yeah, well, that's it. There's just so much in this film. And for me, I just found myself loving the frame so much that I found myself somehow not always hearing the words. Like I could hear like a musicality to the dialogue and I'm like, that sounds nice. And I'd just be exploring (laughs) the frame. I'd be really curious. It's a beautiful looking movie. Again, we have, like, the Panavision, like, anamorphic widescreen mm-hmm. shooting, shooting that Dean Cundy does. And he just makes it look so beautiful, even when it's another fairly low-budget horror film. I mean, this had, like, triple plus, I think, the money that uh, Halloween had. The budget on this was around a million and then they spent another $2 million in, on marketing. But, you know, we're still talking a million-dollar horror film, which is not a lot of money, even in 1980. No. So, no. you know, what they're able to do with that, though, is pretty amazing. Because they have this anamorphic widescreen, which makes it much more kind of majestic than, you know, your standard spherical lens shooting. Well, the whole story in the fog is centered around the town's centennial. And that is such an interesting topic to bring up because so many times when we talk about ownership of land in the United States, it's like, who did we get that from and how did we obtain that? Good point. Right. And I feel like John Carpenter, you know, and Deborah Hill were tuned into that. Um, when they were writing this, because the whole story is, is that this town was able to be established because they robbed some lepers that they tricked to their death. Yeah, like one of the guys who had leprosy was this guy, Blake, who was a rich person, but he had leprosy, and this was before it was able to be treated. And he kind of made a deal with Father Malone right. of, you know, the 1800s version of Father Malone. And, uh, you know, they agreed they were going to be able to set up this colony. But then all of the townspeople changed their mind because yep. they were afraid to have this disease so close to them. It was only going to be a mile away. And they conspired, you know, to set up that fire to mislead them and have the boat crash and then they also stole all of their money yes and that's how their town was able to be made yeah and like Mm. we were talking about with like the children's story feel to this that part kind of brings in this ec comics feel um and john carpenter was like a big fan of these ec comics and he kind of was really into like this just desserts kind of story where 
people do something bad and then they get their just desserts visited back upon them. So this isn't just a ghost story. It's a revenge ghost story. And it's like the sins of the father being visited on this new generation because these ghost lepers, I guess we'll call them, have come back a hundred years later to take out like six descendants of the original conspirators. Yes. And, you know, we learned that from the current day Father Malone, which is Hal Holbrook. Now, the funny thing to me is that that Creepshow is like EC Comics also. Yeah. And the movie Creepshow, which came out a couple years after this, had Hal Holbrook and Adrian Barbeau and Tom Atkins. <laughs> and quite a few of the stories in that are this Just Desserts revenge horror with ghosts and stuff. So I really love that. It's nice they're able to bring around this horror film in a different way than Halloween. Yeah. I, again, I love Halloween so much. And the more I think about it, the more I love it. But, you know, I don't want to go back and because <laughs> I could do another hour and a half on Halloween. <laughs> but with that being said, there's still something about the fog that I, I love even more. I think maybe it, it's simply the fog itself is so gorgeous. You know, yeah. when we see, you know, Point Reyes, you know, we can see just this beautiful location, you know, and at Stenson Beach, you know, you can just see this water and, and it's gorgeous. It's amazing. I mean, there's one shot, I think, that's almost right at the end of the movie where you can really see like the anamorphic widescreen because it almost gives a horizon effect to the yeah. ocean behind the lighthouse. You pointed that out, yeah. And it's absolutely gorgeous. And we actually took a picture like that too because it's just, it's kind of unbelievable. It's just all this ocean for as far as you can see. And there's rocks, you know, and this light, little bitty lighthouse building. And yeah, it's amazing. But I think the other thing about this, because... Yeah, I mean, Halloween had kind of like more of your everyday type um, settings, you know, neighborhoods with houses and kind of any kind of middle America feel that could have been like any town like Haddonfield, Illinois, which is standing in obviously for Haddonfield, New Jersey. Yeah. But that could have been anywhere. And in this case, you can't shoot the story anywhere. This really has to be kind of this crazy awesome like beach bay community that's kind of set off from other places you know and is very specific to the story and they couldn't have picked a better place than point reyes and inverness where they shot this because it is set off it's kind of like a, a you know just an island connected to the mainland by this small little strip And then even to get from, like, the entry point on the island to where the lighthouse is, you have to drive for ages Mm -hmm. on this curvy little road, which we see Adrian Barbeau driving on at one point. We drove on that as well. Um, But I, I love that, too. And I think the other thing, besides, like, the really kind of awe inspiring location that is richer about the fog is that I feel like we get to know the characters better. Yes. You know, in in Halloween, 
we get to know a few of them. Like, I feel like we do understand Laurie Strode very well. Mm -hmm. We get to know Loomis, although, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Loomis is like a one-trick pony. All he wants to tell you is how evil Michael is. You know, we get to know Michael Myers a little bit. But in this, I feel like in the fog, we really dig into people a little bit more. And we get to know who they are. Um, And it's funny because these bad guys who are really getting revenge, and they're not really bad guys, they're right. victims, they they only want to take out six people. They aren't trying to like lay waste to the entire Antonio Bay community. Yeah. They just want to get revenge on six people, like the six people who killed them. So there isn't as, you know, it could have gone wrong, and... I think that they were a little bit concerned about it going wrong because maybe you weren't worried about everyone in the movie getting killed right? because they're only looking for six. And Hal Holbrook, as Father Malone, keeps saying, you know, they want the original conspirators, you know. So they're like, well, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Elizabeth, just showed up in town. So is she really in danger? But she is. I mean... You know, they go after her. So I thought that was a little wobbly sometimes um, because I I certainly felt like everybody in the story could easily be in trouble. I feel like the lepers, if they were able to get a piece of you, they were going to do it. <laughs> you know, like, and I think even if they were able to just stick you a few times with a hook or a blade, they, they would be happy Which about that. Which they do with Stevie Wayne, right? right? I mean, they hook her. Yeah, so it's like they get some people... But they're still in the game. And in a way, when you think about the leper characters, it's kind of like in Better Off Dead, the newspaper kid. I want my $2. Oh, yeah. Like, that's all he wants. He wants his $2. They, You know, these people want their six. That's it. Give me my six. And they'll do what they can to get their six. They can't. And right off the bat in this film, they get three. They get three yeah. in one go. They are 50% there in the first shot, basically. Yeah. Their first their first attempt, they, they go for, you know, three for six. It's right there. I mean, we also have another comparison. We're going back to Halloween again with The Fog. Because we have Jamie Lee Curtis, okay, at the end of Halloween. She's outside of the bedroom. She's in the foreground. And we can see Michael Myers laying on the ground, you know, in the back by the closet. And behind her... We can see him sit up and then he comes at her. And this is very similar to the fog because one of the victims that's retrieved from the boat, the seagrass, where the initial three men are killed. You have Jamie Lee Curtis in the foreground, you know, kind of thinking, okay, And then you see, you know, this cadaver under the sheet get up and grab a scalpel, you know, and actually, you know, come at her. So it's very similar yeah. The Halloween for that moment. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, even though she's new in town, <laughs> she gets terrorized on multiple occasions because before that part, when they're at, like, the medical examiner's office, I guess, they're actually on the boat, and they're in the, you know, hull of the boat talking. She and Tom Atkins' character, Nick Castle, haha, <laughs> his character name is the same name as the actor who played Michael Myers. Um and, you know, they're talking and this locker kind of falls open and scares the crap out of them. And Jamie Lee Curtis says something to the effect of, oh, I think I'm ready to go home now or something. And then behind her, another, like, kind of, like, 
locker type thing opens up and the dead guy falls out on her. Yeah. <laughs> so she's, you know, terrorized on multiple occasions. And possibly the scariest shot to me in this movie is when Jamie Lee Curtis's mom, Janet Lee, who plays kind of this chairperson for the anniversary or town birthday or whatever. Yeah, the 100-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. She goes to the church to try to find Father Malone, and they're worried he's going to be drunk because apparently (laughs) he's always wasted. Right. And she's walking, like, through the sanctuary looking around for him, and she's standing, you know, at the back of the sanctuary with kind of this dark kind of nave or whatever behind her. And suddenly, like, out of the darkness, like, Hal Holbrook pops up like a frickin' jack-in-the-box. Yeah. And it scared me to death every time I watch it. I have to, like, really steal myself for that. And there's a shot in Halloween, again, that is very similar to that with Jamie Lee Curtis kind of standing in front of this darkened room. And Michael Myers suddenly appears out of the darkness in that room. Um, And this was some lighting tricks with Dean Cundy in both occasions. Because in Halloween, they kind of brought up this dimmer switch on Michael so he becomes visible. And in The Fog, they had to kind of darken Hal Holbrook so he would be sufficiently hidden when he just jumps out of the dark. I mean, I would have smacked him on the head for that, Al Holbrook. It's terrifying. I mean, there are so (laughs) many, so many scary moments. And when you go back to when Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis are in, you know, I guess the holes of the seagrass out on that boat where the body falls out. uh, Prior to that, we have, you know, this swinging light that's set up in that room. And that swinging light is very similar to what we see in Touch of Evil. And that's in the, the motel room where Janet Lee is being drugged and held hostage. Yeah. And that's the same scene where Orson Welles strangles Uncle Joe Grandy. So um, it, it's like I think that that swinging light is meant to kind of get you uneasy. Like what's making that swing? Where is that coming from? Yeah. Anything can happen. I think it's just kind of a, a, a subliminal feeling. It also makes you think that you're in motion. You know, when you see that. Well, in the boat, they probably are, and that could explain it. But at the same time, it does create a sense of unease. Yeah. And it's clearly something that, for I'm assuming John Carpenter, was kind of like an elemental fear for him because he keeps coming back to, like, that swinging light from Psycho and Touch of Evil. When you have something that you like, you, you really stick with it. One of the deleted scenes from The Fog was they were on the seagrass, but they were up top, and this uh, cabinet door opened up, this big cabinet door, and then there was a dead body inside of it. And um, this is very much like in Halloween, when Laurie Strode goes into the bedroom, you know, where there are three bodies, and one of them is in this large, you know, square door bedroom closet very similar to what you see on the seagrass it's so funny it's they go back to it and in the fog that was cut you know and then they replaced it with uh, with the basement scare or the hall scare whatever we want to call that Mm -hmm. but yeah i i mean there's there's a lot of uh 
lot of themes that we revisit in this. And that's another reason why it's just so nice to talk about both of these films together. Yeah, because it's, it's they are very different, but at the same time, they they have a lot of similarities and a lot of the things that are successful in one were similarly successful in the other. Well, in this, I'd say what the big difference is would be the fog itself, because the fog is such a character in this piece, and the fog was extremely difficult to control. Now, they did a couple different things with the fog. Uh, one of them was when you would see it like out in Stenson Beach, you would see this glow underneath the fog. So what happened is they would take a picture of the beach and then they would take it back to the studio and then they would like with, uh, you know, with black material kind of make the outline, you know, of the area. In some cases they did it for actually the town and then they would have the fog and they would have this light on it so it could glow and they just mapped that over you know, the existing plate. And that that's how they were able to control the fog so well. And that was like an in-camera effect, right? So yeah. it was cheap. You yeah. know, they did it on the cheap, but it looks really good. Like, you can kind of tell, like, it's not really happening. But at the same time, if you're not thinking about it, which I'm usually not, I'm kind of wrapped up in the story, it just looks like fog rolling into the bay. I buy it every time, and it, the whole film is surreal. And so with that, I accept that things just don't feel quite right. Yeah, well, and that's on purpose. Yeah, to make us uneasy. I mean, something else in the film, going back to the fog. Now, they did like this plate method that I just talked about. And the other thing that they did is they had these, uh, these smoke machines that they would use. And uh, people would come in, and they'd just be blowing, you know, this fog, okay? And what would happen is they couldn't always control the fog. The fog would go a different way than what they wanted. So in one particular shot in town, they actually filmed it in reverse. Um, there's a scene where the truck actually comes into the frame, you know, turns around, you know, it's actually done in reverse. Uh, this is the point after Jamie Lee Curtis and Tom Atkins have saved Andy. And they're in the pickup truck and they're in town. So it's it's very interesting because there's the shot of them looking backwards when at that point they actually would have been driving forwards, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I believe so. Yeah. 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 And, and it does add like an even more eerie sense to the movement of the fog. Yeah. Because the fog is moving backwards. It's like dissipating. Right. But they're showing it like building up and it looks like it's doing that in a really unnatural way. Yes. Because it is. Yeah. All the things that are unnatural in the film are what make it so wonderful. The very beginning when we learn that everything will happen in the witching hour at midnight, um, we love it. We can see, you know, that gas pump getting pulled off that was really the scariest part of the movie to californians since we pay <laughs> you know over six dollars a gallon right now watching all that gasoline spilling out on the ground really gave me a, a shiver <laughs> i mean i feel like they should have had a safety uh piece on their back then because how like how much do you think was pumped out on the ground i mean oh that was gosh, a lot of gas it was a lot of gas i mean I, that scares me because we're both you know terrified of fire oh my god yeah. <laughs> thinking about that just going up well and the interesting thing about that was that those were all shots that were added later yes along with all of like the stuff with the actual 
kind of leper ghosts, right. to my understanding. Because, you know, the, the way that this was originally conceived was there were multiple things um, that contributed to this. But one of the things that Deborah Hill and John Carpenter talked about was that they had visited England together and they had gone to Stonehenge. And down from Stonehenge, there was this big bank of fog and they kind of were talking to each other and they were like, oh, what if something was in there? You know, yeah. and that kind of gave them an initial idea. Well, when I was in England back in high school and we went to Stonehenge, I found it terrifying. I did. I mean, there was so much fog and you just saw these stones, okay? And you were like, oh, wow, okay, that's the rock formation. That's cool. And we had to, you know, get off the bus and I had an umbrella. The wind was so strong that as soon as I got off, it blew the umbrella inside <laughs> out, you know? So it was like really heavy wind and it was rainy and it was, it was scary. And I mean, being there, I could really understand why someone would be like, I wonder what's in the fog because it's, it's a terrifying place. Well, at least is in my memory. I might've hit it just on the scariest <laughs> day in history, but in my mind, I'm like, Ooh, you know, I lived through well. the big stuff. And we don't know what happened there. I mean, there was like, you know, maybe human sacrifices or something. So maybe yeah. you're, you know, empathetically sensing, you know, the bad vibes of Stonehenge. But yeah, that was one of the things. The other thing that they had said was, or that Carpenter was saying, was that there was an actual story of some place around Santa Barbara that there was like a shipwreck where it happened just the way it's explained in this film that, you know, the ship was following this light that was set up on the beach, but it drew them into the rocks and crashed. Um, I couldn't find anything to verify that. So it sounds to me like an urban legend thing or possibly John Carpenter's doing some myth making here. <laughs> I'm not sure. But um, yeah, that was another thing that he had said. But what I thought was cool was that they initially wanted to just have the fog be the bad guy and it was just this mysterious thing and they weren't going to explain it but they you know cut the movie completely and showed it in their first kind of uh you know viewer feedback was that that wasn't going to work you know and they listened to that so i'm sure that they were pissed because we would have been oh yeah <laughs> I mean, he scored it and everything. They thought it was set to go. And then when you think you're done, you find out, oh, my God, the work has just begun because I need to go back and redo all of this. So, you know, the way Carpenter put it, they basically reshot the film in a month. And there are so many sequences that are incredible in the film that were added. You know, Stevie Wayne on the top of the lighthouse, yeah. that was not there. You know, I mean, that was such a big thing. All of these scary elements at the beginning, the gas pumps, you know, I believe the 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 late night janitor in the Canyon Country yes. store. I believe that was added as well. The chair moving. The honking, you know, car alarms and things like this. Yeah. All this weird shit that started happening during the witching hour mm -hmm. was new. And then they had, you know, these leper ghost sequences, I think, were also added later. Um, and the first time we see those is when they go on to the seagrass yes and take out um buck flower george a, buck flower's first appearance a carpenter staple in his first appearance yeah and he's his name is tommy wallace <laughs> <laughs> 
They love it. Yep. Uh, and then you have Wallace Williams and Baxter are the three guys who were on this this ship. And it's really funny because they're just out in this boat, fishermen, just having a drink, you know, getting ready to turn in, I guess, and then get to work again the next day. And Stevie Wayne comes on and tells him there's a fog bank coming. And Buck Flowers looking out the window and he's like, there isn't any fog bank. And then as soon as he says it, here comes the fog. And he's like, oh, there's a fog bank. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, and, you know, then they start to feel uneasy. They go out to check it out. And, of course, all three of them are donezo. Yeah, they're gone. And, I mean, that was something that was added. They actually have the storyboard sequence on the Blu-ray that we have on the 4K disc. And it was really impressive to see the side-by-side -side with the finished product and their storyboard. Yeah. So I, I, I really like it. And I think that adding the lepers you know, was needed. And it was that yeah. extra, extra punch. Totally. That, that just brings us into the next area. Because those guys were extremely scary. Yeah. Um, it's Rob Botin, right, is playing Blake. Yeah. Um, and he is, it's really cool the way that he did um, his effect is that he's got like this kind of mask on. And for the eyes, he put this red scotch light material, which is what they put on stop signs to make them reflective. So it's these glowing red eyes um, that are really creepy. I don't think I'd seen anything like that before. No, I, I hadn't. And I mean, the very ending of the film is fantastic when Hal Holbrook is alone in the church. You know, they've given back the gold. You know, it had been forged into this cross of gold, which is pretty symbolic. Yeah, heck yeah. And so that's given back to Blake because one of the big things is that Blake and his men want their money back, you know. Um, and they also want their six, as we find out, because they get the money, they leave, and we're like, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> and, and then, like, you hear Father Malone, you know, saying something about, oh, why did you get the six, Blake? And then Blake shows up, and the very ending of the film is, you know, he gets beheaded by Blake's saber. We don't actually see the beheading, but we see the blade coming out. And it's, it's a terrifying ending, and it's perfect. It's scary, but it's not, it's not loud. You know, like yeah. in so many films where you have the horror, you have the kill, and a large part of the scare is the music. And this, it's the situation itself that's terrifying. I mean, when you look down the center aisle of the church and you see all of these ghost lepers and this fog and the eyes, I mean, this is very unsettling. I mean, well, and this is from 1980. 1980 they did this, you know? Yeah. And I mean, this seemed to all be practical work. This wasn't anything where they're like, let's just CG a rhino head on this guy. <laughs> you know, it, it's well, just scary. And the, the coolest thing to me is that you, you know, have been lulled into a false sense of security. Like, oh, right. I guess they did just want their gold. That's a little weird, but hey, whatever. And then, you know, you're back in this quiet church and you start to see the fog seeping under the door right. and you're like, oh, hell, here they come. You're not safe after all. And it one gets the sense that Father Malone didn't think he was safe anyway. Yeah, I think he was still waiting for the other shoe to drop. But John and I had a funny conversation about this as well, which was like, OK, so they got their gold. 
but they only got five out of their six. So what happened? You know, I imagined, you know, the leper ghosts kind of going back to almost like a Monty Python sketch style committee meeting where they discussed if they were good on the five or not. They're like, well, you know, they did give us the gold back. Yeah, but we really wanted six. <laughs> but I mean, you know, we got five. We got the gold. So are we good on this? Can we move on? No, I think you're really going to have to go back and take out one more, you know. And they did. So, But I really laughed my butt off probably a little too much about that. No, I think it's hilarious, and I think that you have a perfect point. I can see it as a Monty Python sketch. I can see it as a Kids in the Hall sketch. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's like the fact that they left means they actually did think about it yeah. for a second. They were like, maybe. They were at least yeah. somewhat satisfied by getting the gold back yeah. that they considered letting it go because they could have gotten the gold back and killed Father Malone right there. He was the one who gave him the gold. It's Well, that's an interesting story, the Father Malone character played by Hal Holbrook. So it was his grandfather, who was also Father Malone, that, you know, seemed to be in charge of this, I don't know, I mean, how do I want to put it, swindling of these lepers and their death. I mean, this is a lot to carry. The, the Father Malone character, played by Hal Holbrook, does not seem like a good man at all. We see him drinking from the beginning you know, in the back office. And we see Bennett, who is played by John Carpenter himself. <laughs> um, he's a guy that works at the church, seems to do some odd jobs. And, you know, he needs to get paid. And he asks Hal Holbrook, hey, can I get paid? And instead of saying, I'll pay you, um, he actually cuts his hours. Yeah. You know, he tells him to come in later the next day. And this is after he's already expressed. I mean, he said, I, I need some more money. You know, yeah. I need some money. And can I get well, paid? Well, we saw him working. I mean, yeah. he was doing things in there. Meanwhile, Father Malone's in the office kicking back on some wine. Right. I don't know. He's like popped off the communion wine in there. What's I, going on? I think he went for the hard stuff. I mean, I feel <laughs> like we bought it. I feel like Father Malone would like just go to the collection plate and be like, yeah, I'm going to set this up. because <laughs> Just take I a little it. off the top for himself. He earned it. And you know he would <laughs> think that. I mean, Father Malone is not a good character. And then it seems like he gets a conscience when he looks back at the sins of his grandfather yeah. somehow. And he knows that he's not... He's not good. He actually wants to sacrifice himself to Blake. When he turns over the cross, he's holding the cross. And when Blake grabs the cross, the cross glows. And it looks like it's either burning or electrifying Hal Holbrook. It looks like he's going to go. Yeah. But, you know, a Tom Atkins saves him. He pulls him off. Um, you know, it's just like it's a real change with this character of Father Malone. It's all about him but he is not a, a black and white character and no. it's funny saying that because he's literally wearing <laughs> black and white so he is a black and white character in terms of costume well, but, but in his terms hair of, is shades of gray oh yeah <laughs> i mean it's so it's i like that we have the this flawed character and this is the person that actually has all the solid information you know, because this stone fell out of the wall, and that's how he was able to obtain the journal of his grandfather, Father Malone. And that's also how he was able to find this huge cross of gold in the wall 
again, yeah. that was melted down from all the gold that they stole from these lepers. It's a lot to carry. And get this, when he's carrying that gold cross and it's heavy, it's again like he's Jesus carrying, oh, yeah. the, you know what I mean? And he's going to <laughs> sacrifice himself. Well, it reminded yeah. me of the Good Friday service at our church <laughs> where, you know, our our priest who we're Episcopal also and this I'm assuming is Episcopal because it's a father but he has a grandfather who was also a father so yeah. can't be Catholic but the the priest usually you know drags a giant cross around the church on Good Friday right so it reminded me of that a little bit too I could see that I mean I really like that and this goes to talking about how deep these characters are we have, you know, Tom Atkins, who is always enjoyable. Tom Atkins, we first see, you know, driving in his truck at night, you know, just drinking some beer, <laughs> yeah. you know, and he picks up Jamie Lee Curtis in the middle of nowhere in the dead of night. Yeah. Like, it's really creepy. Like, where he picks up Jamie Lee Curtis, that's where you literally pick up someone that's going to murder you, yeah. you know, like... It, it just makes me think back to the original Friday the 13th and there's someone like driving to Camp Crystal Lake and they stop to pick up a hitchhiker and the hitchhiker kills them. That's the kind of thing that would happen if you pick someone up like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and even in Friday the 13th, it was during the day, you know, when they got you with this dead of night, you're definitely done because I am scared of the dark. It would have just scared the crap out of me to even see a person on the side of the road, yeah. much less, you know, pick them up. I mean, I know it's a different time. And there was a lot more acceptableness to hitchhiking at that time than there is now. But if I saw somebody just like, you know, stepping about <laughs> out of the woods, because it does feel like the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I think I would have freaked out a little bit. But Tom Atkins takes it all in stride. Yeah. he. I mean, there's nothing that's going to phase this man. He gets Jamie Lee Curtis. They're kind of hanging out. And then in no time, they're in bed together. And that's after, like, they had experienced something quite scary yeah which is right after you know he picks her up and they start talking and they talk for like maybe a couple minutes all the glass blows out of the truck windows and the windshield and the back window and you know it scares them but they kind of are just like well that was weird you know yeah <laughs> and then they just are like let's let's bang <laughs> um we don't see that part but we have to assume it since the next time we see them they're in bed yeah yeah, like Tom Atkins is just kind of laid out, you know. He takes his time. He's not like the people in Halloween <laughs> that want to have sex and run. I mean, these folks are just sitting about, you know, he's looking at Jamie Lee Curtis's drawings. They're just chatting it up. It's a really, like, easy kind of night. It's pretty great. I imagine there's probably, like, some wine just out of frame. It's a good you know, idea. And, and just some, some nice, smooth music. They're right on the water. He's, you know, Tom Atkins has this incredible place right on the water. Or should I say Nick Castle? Wow, wow. <laughs> um, and, and I, I Everybody really... does, actually, because Stevie Wayne's house is right on the water, too. It's well, I guess these people definitely have roots in this town because if they were able to afford that real estate, yeah. You know, well, I mean, Stevie Wayne has just you get the sense that she's just moved there recently and, and bought this radio station, but that is a hell of a nice house. I think it looks great. And my favorite part with Stevie Wayne is when her son Andy says, Hey, mom, can I get a stomach pounder and a coke? I have no idea what a stomach and pounder she says is. After lunch, and I'm like, "Do you need a stomach pounder after you've already eaten? Like that sounds like something you're really gonna 
I don't even know what that is. I tried to Google it. I have no, you know, I had I had multiple results come back, but none of them were satisfactory to me. That just made me think about some kind of being with a really large fist just hitting me square in the stomach. <laughs> Ow! Exactly. Like, I don't want that. I'll take the Coke, though, because, you know, Coca-Cola I've loved since birth. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> since birth. Oh, yeah, it's true. I don't really think I would want in it to eat something called a stomach pounder. I mean, maybe when you're a kid. Now, it yeah. sounds massively unpleasant. Yeah. Like, you'd really have to take some Toms after that. Uh, well, you know, I have to tell you, when I was a kid, my dad actually let me have root beer um, in my bottle just a little bit. He <laughs> let me uh, sip some of his root beer. I don't think he put it in a bottle. I think maybe it was just out of his, you know, cup. Um, because whatever liquid I had was gone, and he let me try it a little. And he thought, you know, I would just have a little sip. But once I got it in my hands, it must have been a, a bottle or a can. I wouldn't let go. I kept drinking it, <laughs> and he was trying to pull away this root beer. That's so funny. From the beginning, yeah, I have been into soda. You know, my dad told me that. I always laughed. That's really funny. I yeah. loved it. I mean, I wouldn't let go, Georgia. My, I wouldn't give it back. <laughs> my friend Natalie, uh, her dad, if she wouldn't wake up on Saturdays, would come into the bedroom and like open a coke bottle and then right. she would instantly wake up to have some coke so wow yeah you guys are hooked through the bag it's true i mean we're we're just on it we really just need that coca-cola classic the red white and you, you know? <laughs> for me i don't think i had that because my dad always bought like the off-brand soda so i couldn't develop like a serious loyalty yeah because off-brand soda isn't as good yeah. Yeah. My dad was a huge Pepsi fan, huge root beer fan. Um, yeah. I mean, we were big soda people. But I mean, in this film, I mean, I think really what most people are having is beer. I mean, we see yeah. people, you know, well, no, beer. And I think, I think that Father Malone is doing some strong whiskey. And, well, you know, we see him drinking red wine. That's what he drops on okay. the floor when the, when the rock falls. However, however, by the time Janet Lee shows up, yeah, I do feel that he has been hitting the sauce pretty hard. Yes, and it's worth you know it's more than you know I think a little vino at that point. Yeah, and it's because you know he found that journal. He's figured out that like this hundred year anniversary of the town is a sham. Right. He doesn't want to go and do this blessing that he was planning to do. You know, Janet Lee is mostly just pissed that you know her whole thing that she's been setting up is going to tank yeah and we also have nancy loomis who plays sandy you know she's back of course from halloween she was annie yeah and she's janet lee's assistant yeah when they finally get to have the 100 year celebration i mean it's terrible i mean the power goes out you know and it's like janet lee is like oh you know people could just see the statue and go and the police are like i don't know we should call it you should go home and also during this time janet lee her husband is gone you know he was on the seagrass yeah he's williams yeah mr williams which was kind of the other older bearded man. It's <laughs> not Buck Flower who got, you know, offed on the boat. He took the saber through the gut, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah from yeah. the back, like Oof. stabbed him through the back. Got the spine. Up into his chest. Like it was really creepy. Harsh. Yeah. That was, that was a great scene. Such a great scene. Um, but yeah, so she's still working even though her husband is dead. That would be what my job would ask me to do. <laughs> That's so. sad because it's true. Yeah, anyway. Uh, 
What else? Well, let's talk about the actual scene with Dan O'Bannon. We haven't really talked about oh, Dan yeah. O'Bannon. Again, another person that John Carpenter knows. And he is a character in this, played by Charles Cyphers, who is a weatherman. And um, he is actually in his weather station, if we want to call it that. And he talks on the telephone to Stevie Wayne quite a bit. He gives her updates on the fog and what's happening out there. So he's talking to Stevie Wayne at one point, And while he's talking to her in the background, we can see through the window that the fog is coming. We've talked a ton about Dean Cundy's lighting. And this particular instance for me could possibly be my favorite sequence with the lighting so you know it's like so he's in this room that that seems a lot like a, a radio booth is what it feels like to me he's in this room and then you can see a window and through the window we see the fog coming while he's on the phone with stevie wayne and the lights go out and then he's bathed in this red light because there's this emergency light over the door you know and it it like adds to the terror because red makes us think there's going to be danger there's going to be fear and we know that when you see the fog that those bad guys are going to be in there and you're going to die yeah and like stevie wayne is terrified because she realizes there is a power in this and you know dan is like oh i'm going to go check it out and He's like, yeah, these people are playing a prank on me and they're going to be sorry they did. Like, you know, he thinks he's going to kick some ass. You know what I mean? And I'm like, Spoiler alert, no. (laughs) Exactly, right? You're the weatherman this time, bro. You're not Sheriff Brackett. Yeah. And so it's like he goes to the door and when he goes to the door, the fog is there and, you know, the lepers are there and he gets hooked like right in the neck and he gets killed. It's, it's a very, very scary sequence because when you see the light of the fog up close, it's like this pulsating kind of white light. They do a great job of keeping it terrifying. Yeah, again, very unnatural. Yes. You know, and the way that the fog moves here, I believe, was achieved by, you know, they had like the smoke and everything and they were kind of like manually pushing it around with like some kind of like I don't know if they were using cardboard or something to kind of you know push it which I thought was really amazing yeah you know how they made it work and yeah the lighting in this this part of the fog is I think the coolest for me too um, because it is really weird and I would have immediately been you know sus (laughs) but Dan O'Bannon really all he's thinking about is continuing to like put the moves on Stevie Wangs. He thinks he's like this, you know, phone Casanova with her, uh, which I thought was really funny. (laughs) Yes. Well, and also that he had a larger part before the film was recut. So part of me wonders what else did Dan O'Bannon have cooking? That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't remember them saying that, but like it makes sense because before, if it was more focused on the fog itself, you know, he's the weather guy, so he would have been more aware of the fog. Yeah, absolutely. We also have another babysitter connection. We have Mrs. Kobritz, who's watching Andy. Andy, of course, is Stevie Wayne's kid. And so the fog is coming in. Stevie Wayne is like, you know, freaking out, telling everybody, you know, to be careful at this point. 
Um, I, I think she's actually talking on air, and I don't know if they have the radio on. They do, but I didn't feel like Miss Cobritz, like, acknowledged it, per yeah. se. But, like, the fog, you know, Stevie Wayne can see from the lighthouse that the fog is kind of enveloping the area where her house is, where mm -hmm. her son is. And she's terrified, and she's screaming at, at him to leave, you know, run away. Um, but Mrs. Cobritz is like, oh, let's shut all the doors and the windows. Yeah. And, and then she stands at the front door that's open, you know, and, and she tells Andy to go to his room. And I'm like, what are you doing? Well, like, there's a knocking on the door. So she's actually answering the door. I wouldn't answer that. And Andy was like, no, I want to stay and see who it is, you know. <laughs> and she's like, no, you got to go. And he, right, right as soon as he leaves the room, we see the lepers take mrs cobritz yeah there's like two or three of them to get her like they really get her yeah mrs cobritz's ancestor must have been really you know one of the bad guys because they were like we're taking this lady out um yeah. and that's really scary because then andy is like in his bedroom and trying to hide and these you know, lepers kind of come into the house. Well, and then they actually start cutting through his door with their hooks. And this is interesting because, again, the fog came out in 1980, the same year as The Shining. And we always remember Jack Torrance coming through the door of the bathroom to get Wendy. And he split that door open with an axe. And this film, it's a similar shot, but it's just like a hook. Yeah. You know, like that a fisherman would use. And I think it was Tommy Lee Wallace sticking his arm through the door again, probably. <laughs> why is he the hand guy? I just love it. I don't know why he's the hand he's guy. A, he's a supreme hand actor in yeah. the John Carpenter films. What if he's like a hand model on the side, you know, and he just <laughs> never talked about it? Love it. That would be a great story. But yeah, I mean, we've got so much in this film that I feel is unique, is different. This is a film I did not see until much later Same. when I was viewing the John Carpenter films. People told me, yeah, it's kind of boring. Nothing really happens. Yeah. And Are those it, people on drugs? I don't know. Like when we saw it, like when we experienced it for the first time, it was like we had it on DVD, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe, you know, and we... We were like, oh, okay, we haven't seen this one. And we checked it out, and we're like, okay, this is the top of the list. And we always wanted to get another copy with even better resolution. Which we have now, and it's yeah. awesome. And there's a lot of special features and, you know, commentary. There's two different commentaries yes. to listen to, and they're both equally awesome. So, you know, honestly, I can't recommend enough to run out and get this Fog, like, steelbook edition that we got yeah the, the shout factory does great stuff and, and we had the the blu-ray previously and now we've got this 4k and we love it i wish we had the poster the poster looks amazing yeah. but you know we uh we didn't get it through shout factory but that's a whole other story yeah well we don't need to get into that we, we love we, shout factory though and we've spent a lot of money unfortunately <laughs> yes we're in the poorhouse now, yeah so. oh speaking of poorhouse something else that we have in common in both the fog and also in halloween is when they're in the car and there are dialogue scenes at night they use something called poor man's process which is the car is actually in a garage and they just made it dark and people are going by with lights so it looks like they're driving but and they're shaking the kind of vehicle yes yeah body. they're they're moving it around so it, it like it feels it feels real and it's just so well done once again you know 
you never think about it. Not I mean, at all. you would see things in movies where they did like that rear projection in movies and they were driving. I never really liked that. I was like, oh, man. Well, it kind of is old. That's like an old style thing. And I can live with it in like old Hitchcock movies and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but... you know, in, in newer movies, sometimes it doesn't look so good. But this looked great. And of course, it's nighttime. So that makes it a little bit easier in one respect because you can just black out everything else and just have like lights periodically flashing by well the way they're able to make these films so good and so fast and with this they had to reshoot this film in a month come up with the music again and i can't imagine you know what they had before i'd be curious if they ever would release that sometime for people to see i wonder if i would enjoy that as well i mean i love this version so much it'd be difficult for me to have a, another version I like more. I mean, this is my favorite performance of Adrienne Barbeau. You know, I always thought of her as Thornton Mellon's, you know, soon-to-be ex-wife and back to school. That's the first thing I think of. I thought about her in Creepshow as the, you know, harridan, harpy wife of Hal Holbrook. Um, so we, those are similar kind of roles, yeah. actually. So uh, it was funny, though, to see her in this because it's a completely different thing. I loved it. It was so intense. You know, she was alone. You know, she did all those scenes by herself, you know, on this lighthouse set. You know, and it's, she's being a DJ. She's talking on the telephone. She's reacting to supernatural elements that are there. You know, we see her driving to the studio. We see a brief scene where she wakes up. But most of our work with Stevie Wayne is at that lighthouse. And then at the very end, of course, on the lighthouse roof, she is able to have such depth to her character. I really feel that, of course, she cares about her son, but she also cares about the town. She yeah. has a, a sense of responsibility. And, I mean, let's get deep. She's literally in a lighthouse, right? So she wants to shine a light and let you know what's happening. Kind of be a beacon of hope. Say, go here, do this, it's coming. It's another film where everyone teams up. It also makes me think of, in a way, Jaws. Um, it's similar but different. I mean, Jaws, again, we're dealing with a physical creature, you know, and it has some, some supernatural capabilities, you know, kind of like Michael Myers, if you think about it. Um, anyways, you get my point. Slasher with teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Jaws. But yeah, and, and interestingly enough, this here at the end uh, of the movie with Stevie Wayne, we have another connection with Halloween, which is uh, the movie The Thing from Another World. Um, and that's one of John Carpenter's favorite films, I guess, from when he was a kid. And in Halloween, it's the movie that Lindsay and Tommy are watching on this kind of scary movie marathon that they're, they're, they've been watching. And here at the end of The Fog, uh, Adrian Barbeau kind of does this look to the skies speech, which is what ends the thing from another world. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, it's really interesting because the threat at this point seems to be over. You know, we still have Father Malone is about to take it, but <laughs> everybody else is pretty much safe. But, you know, she kind of gives this whole speech about having to be careful and look for the fog and it's really impassioned and, and amazing the way that she does that. And that leads us uh, to our next movie that we're going to be doing in this John Carpenter horror series. 
next week we will be back with the thing yes we're back again with another keith david movie you can't do better than that keith david so so good we have such a great cast in that film uh wilford brimley yes and of course frequent carpenter collaborator kurt russell Mm -hmm. heading up the cast so we are really looking forward to talking about that one. Rob Bottin doing all the effects. Of course, he did the lepers, you know, in the fog. He also did the worm face uh, oh, leper, yeah. which comes in at the end of the fog when Stevie Wayne is up on the roof. That was something that he brought to the table. So it was very interesting because this was the first collaboration that they had with Rob Bottin. And, you know, it continued. And in The Thing, I mean, that's where we really crank it up to a whole other level yeah. in terms of the effects, in terms of the makeup. I mean, that film is is a masterpiece. It's going to be interesting to see... You know, if I still have The Fog as my favorite after The Thing, or if The Thing is number one. I don't know. I still think The Fog's going to hang on, but boy, <laughs> do I love The Thing. Yeah, and this time we are actually planning on watching The Thing from Another World as well, because um, we've never seen that. No, nope. And uh, just based on how influential it clearly was for John Carpenter, we're going to try to take a look at that um, and see, you know, where we see the connections. So that's going to be exciting. We're really looking forward to that. Um, so that's actually it, though, for this episode. Yeah. With I've... Halloween in the Fog. Number 50, guys. This was number 50. We came in with two big movies here. I mean, there yeah. was so much talking here, so much research. <laughs> we'll see how much of it makes it to you and how much ends up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> but we appreciate you sticking with us for this long, if you indeed have. <laughs> we know it's been a marathon. You're a friend um, to the end. Thank you. <laughs> and we hope that you were able to have as much fun as we were, you know, watching these movies and talking about Halloween and the fog. So until next time, stay comfy. <laughs> <laughs>